0: Welcome to Subject to Talent, brought to you by Allegis Global Solutions. Similar to you, we're always trying to learn more. On this podcast, we speak to talent experts around the world, covering workforce management, market trends, technology, and our forever evolving dynamic industry. Welcome and thank you for joining us on Subject to Talent. My name is Frank Edge. Today, AGS's Global Executive Director of Human Resources, Sarah Babin, sits down with Allegis Group's President, Andy Hilger. He is responsible for driving alignment and growth across a network of specialized companies, collectively a $13 billion enterprise. Known for his versatility and strong work ethic, Andy spearheads Allegis Group's digital transformation strategy, leveraging partnerships, state-of-the-art technology, data, and analytics to create unparalleled experiences for our customers. Hilger has a passion for driving an innovative culture that continues to create opportunity for Allegis Group's team members and customers. In this episode, Andy and Sarah discuss the opportunity divide. Let's learn more.
1: Thanks for joining me today, Andy. I'm really excited to speak with you about a very uh, relevant and interesting topic. Uh, Before we get into the questions, I'd like to start off by uh, asking, how did you get your start in the staffing industry?
2: Yeah, sure. First, thanks for having me. I'm really excited. I am a a podcast geek, so uh, I was excited to hear a lot of the, the early Subject to Talent podcasts and really thrilled to have the opportunity to speak with you today. Uh, like a, like a lot of people, I think I stumbled into the staffing industry. I, I had finished graduate school uh, and moved to Syracuse, New York, where my wife was in nursing school, and uh, spent a few years there while she finished nursing school and and f- served out some time that she owed the hospital. And in those couple of years, I think we had about 15 feet of snow, and it became really clear to me, maybe maybe less clear to her, that. Uh, Syracuse was a fantastic place uh, to be from and, and a, an exciting place to visit, but uh, that was probably not where we were going to uh, plant our roots. So we really picked a number of cities and, uh, somewhat sight unseen, I had some good friends in Baltimore and decided, hey, that that seems like a pretty good place. Which I don't know that a lot of people choose Baltimore if they've got you know, the world as their oyster. But we loved uh, the, the proximity to family, the the feel of it. It's it's a Just a good, not a lot of pretense to Baltimore. And I called a friend and said, uh, hey, don't you work for a company that helps people find jobs? And and, uh, she said, oh, you have to come work here and and got me set up with an interview. And I probably went through five or six interviews and and at that point still didn't know if I had gotten the job, didn't really know what I was going to do. Didn't understand what this company did, but there was something about it. There was this uh, really infectious enthusiasm, and there was this sense that we were building something, and this culture that I just wanted to be a part of. But I took a leap of faith, and and now, you know, 23 years later, haven't looked back, and have have really been uh, fortunate to to have found Allegis Group and found this industry. And and I would I would say, like a lot of people. Uh, It's been more about the people and the company and the mission than the industry, but I've really come to appreciate the staffing industry along the way.
1: Oh, that's great. You know, it's funny. I uh, have a similar story in that I came from upstate New York to down here, so I completely can relate to getting out of that weather and and coming down to Baltimore. So that's good stuff. Um, Allegis Group says opportunity starts here. What does that mean to you?
2: Yeah, so I, I mentioned we talk a lot about opportunity and during that interview process where I didn't understand what we did. I did understand this sense of purpose and mission around opportunity. But for us, that has to be internalized. So I think about uh, an office visit I made when we could travel um, to to our (laughs) Southern California office. And usually I I field a lot of questions during a town hall. And at some point I'll turn the the situation around and ask people questions. And I asked, hey, why are you here? Uh, But then this woman um, said, hey, I'll share. And uh, she shared with me that she was here because when she was 21 and a single mom, she needed a paycheck. And we hired her as a receptionist. And now 12 years later, she had moved into three different jobs. She was now in a, a very healthy, stable relationship and had bought her dream house. And and for me, if that's why we exist. That's what opportunity starts here means. Uh, and, and and I think there there are thousands of stories like that. Now that's a pretty dramatic one, uh, but I'll, I'll I'll give you one more because uh, I love telling it. Uh, I was in India in November, and one of our best recruiters in India is a gentleman named Gokul, and Gokul as a rising university student had a virus that took away his eyesight, and he ended up in a a pretty dark place as he was then trying to find employment after his university experience. And through a partnership with Allegis Group and Enable India, we hired Gokul. Uh, He went on to become our top recruiter in India. He he travels, I want to say, 90 minutes through Bangalore traffic on public transportation every day. He's now been promoted three or four times. And to hear Gokul talk about his opportunity uh, is is what I think of when I think opportunity starts here. But I also think about the people who work with Gokul and how he's completely changed their perception of what's possible and how they've developed empathy as leaders. And they've they've just become better people um, through the experience. So, and we're so much about purpose, and we're so much about helping people realize their potential and, and what's possible uh, through through their experience. So, so that's what Opportunity Starts Here means for me.
1: Wow, those are two incredibly powerful and inspiring stories. Uh, thank you for sharing those. That was. That was incredible. So now uh, thinking about 2020, what has Allegis done to keep the feeling of opportunity alive despite all that the world has been through this year?
2: Yeah, it's a great question, and it's something that, as leaders, we've had to be really intentional about. Uh, When you're not growing and you're contracting, some of those stories that I just told about promotion and and how people are realizing their dreams uh, don't don't become less important, but they feel a little bit out of reach. And I think uh, we've had to really focus on what is opportunity, during this time and, and uh, risk being the 7 millionth person to say it, you know, these are unprecedented times and I, there isn't a playbook for 2020. So how we've thought about opportunity uh, has, has, has really been informed by first the pandemic and then uh, the, the protests uh, around racial injustice. So, so let me hit both those if, if that's okay. I think you know, from a pandemic perspective, this virus doesn't discriminate, Uh, doesn't know what your political beliefs are, doesn't know uh, how much money you have or or your race or ethnicity or your gender. Uh, But at the same time, for us, we have a pretty broad survey of people working in different industries, in different professions. And we got to see how, while the virus didn't discriminate, there was a really disproportionate impact on populations least able to deal with the kind of shock that was coming to our system. So we had lots of people who were uh, dealing with the stressors that are very real and the challenges of picking up on a Friday and working from home on a Monday. But we also had thousands of people who were being uh, informed that their job was going to go away for a while or maybe permanently. And so uh, when, when you're a, a, a company that's so focused on opportunity, we really had to look very closely at what are we doing to help those people? And and at first it was, how are we treating them with a great deal of compassion and empathy as they were going through a really difficult time? And frankly, as our teams were going through a really difficult time, and I couldn't have been more proud of how our teams really responded and and focused on the people who were most uh, impacted. Um, So that, that was first. And then how do we help Place them. How do we help find them something? And I watched uh, our our offices, our company, our our regions all rally together with this tremendous sense of purpose. So, the pandemic, I think, uh, has 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 really just shed light on how critical that focus on opportunity is, and how how employment is is uh, such a, a an important aspect of hope. It's an important aspect of dignity and purpose for people, and we play a really critical role there. So fast forward a little bit, and I, I, I think we had dealt with some of the initial shock of the pandemic, and we're all still uh, working through that, uh, but, but I was really proud of how we had responded, and then uh, some of the, the issues of racial injustice came to light, the, the George Floyd video being probably that, that flashpoint that, that shined a light on uh, some terrible injustice that was happening in our country, and then I think as as other countries uh, rallied around this, recognized that this was not unique to the United States. this was something that was happening globally and and so for us, uh, I had a really uh challenging week trying to get my mind around what was happening after the George Floyd video, the Breonna Taylor killing, uh, s- things like the Ahmad Arbery, which had happened months before, suddenly became uh, a-, a focal point of the discussion. And and I felt this real sense of frustration and despair. I'm a, I'm a positive, optimistic person. And um, yeah, there are challenges and we're going to overcome them. And I think there was a-, a-, a real recognition that there were some fundamental issues where we had not made much progress. And uh I I did a lot of listening. I talked to a lot of people and tried to understand as best I could um, where we were falling short, where I was falling short, what that needed to look like. And and like I said, um, I can't ever feel uh, the the full weight of that burden, but I I did feel a fair amount of responsibility and and despair around that. And and, uh, at some point, I started to recognize that, hey, maybe— uh, this is really just the start of a movement, and that, that really these issues, uh, which have been around for 400 years uh, in this country, and certainly 240 since we said all men are created equal, uh, maybe this is the time, this is the time where we need to address them. And, and so I started to shift from a feeling of, of frustration and despair to what can we do, what can I do, and how does opportunity play a part there? How do we help bridge the opportunity divide that's been a part of this this challenge that we're all facing?
1: Yeah, I love that mindset. I think, you know, with all the heaviness of this year, between the pandemic, between all the racial injustices, I think taking uh, the negative and trying to turn it into a positive is really inspiring. So thank you for sharing that. Uh, when did you first realize that this opportunity divide existed?
2: Yeah, so, so f- first, <laughs> I've been so inspired by other people, so I appreciate you saying that. But uh, I'm, I'm probably more trying to amplify voices and ideas that I've heard. And, and, and maybe a quick comment on that. Uh, I, I was thinking a lot about this. There, there's a developmental model that says we all start out unconsciously unskilled, and we move to consciously unskilled, and then we move to consciously skilled, and then we've got to ultimately get to unconsciously skilled. And uh, mm-hmm. re- relative to this this uh, movement, uh, for me and for a lot of us, I think this is was really just the first step in in moving from unconsciously unskilled to maybe consciously unskilled. So I I want to uh, maybe clarify the, the 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 early days, but hey, that's an important first step in in this journey, uh, and and. and you asked how did I sort of realize this opportunity divide existed. I, I say uh, I was unconsciously unskilled. I, I, I certainly was aware um, of, of, of what was going on, but I, I grew up in a pretty homogenous place. I grew up uh, in, a, in a town outside of Philadelphia and I went, I went to college and I, that was probably when I was really first exposed to difference. And, and that was through the, the academic course that I was taking, I, I remember uh, reading Maya Angelou, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I remember taking an African-American lit class that, that uh, exposed me to uh, Ralph Ellison and Richard Wright and James Weldon Johnson and W.B. Du Bois and, and you know, these really amazing thinkers. So I started to maybe awaken to, to some of the, the challenges, but it was also a really interesting time. I, I went to a school that had been... Not the most diverse place, and and uh, the school had made a concerted effort to say, "Hey, we're going to really figure out diversity." Uh, and I, I was on a multicultural executive council, and I remember talking to some of my friends from this council about their experience. And and one of them just said to me, "Hey, I feel like the school's much more interested in cultural visibility than cultural diversity." I said, well, "What do you what do you mean by that?" And and he said, hey, I was recruited really heavily to come here. And this this was a really, really sharp gentleman who probably had his pick of schools and, and chose, chose Notre Dame where I went. And he said, hey, I, I come here and I don't feel that welcome. I don't feel like uh, there's a place for me to sit in the dining hall. Uh, my dorm doesn't really pull me in. I go into the bookstore and there's no hair care products for me. And that might sound like a simple thing, but that's such a symbolic thing. And so for me, this this was something that was more than an academic exercise, that, that uh, cultural diversity um, was, and, and now I think we talk about diversity versus inclusion as maybe that distinction that he was making some 30 years ago. Uh, but I started to really understand, maybe, um, that, that uh, this was a bigger deal than I had maybe understood.
1: Wow. Uh, that's pretty impactful. Uh, how did that realization change you?
2: I guess for for me Sarah, the and, and this is maybe the model I can think of now like up through high school uh, educations about individuation. It's about how do we I'm sorry, it's about socialization. It's about how do we teach you the things you need to, to function and succeed And then once you get to college, it's about individuation and you start to really, I think find who you are and what you believe, and, and uh, so for me, as I was finishing up college, I didn't know what I wanted to do, and, but I ha- had this sense of duty and obligation to serve, and, and I think it was because co- of conversations like that that I had had with this, this, this uh, gentleman and my experience up, up until that point, I remember going to a volunteer fair and I was going to go do the Peace Corps somewhere or a uh, Jesuit Volunteer Corps or something along those lines. And uh, I, met, I met a gentleman named Chris Karpinski, and he represented this organization called Boys Hope. And I'm walking to different booths and uh, I said, all right, w- what does Boys Hope do? And, and he said, hey, we find these amazing kids who have all the potential in the world who could do just about anything but their circumstance or their situation is likely blocking them from achieving their potential and we need people to come as volunteers and live in their house in the, in group homes and houses where these uh, scholars would come live and help them realize their potential and and that that uh, conversation right there so struck me as this is what I want to do, this is what I need to do. So I probably was this wide-eyed, idealistic uh, person. I I got put in a house outside of Akron, Ohio. Most of the kids were from either Cleveland or a few from Akron, and uh, it was really hard. I was leaving 8,000 people who were about my age. We were having a great time, and and suddenly I'm, I'm alone with Eight teenage boys. I'm 22 years old. I'm supposed to be their parent. (laughs) I'm cooking. I'm teaching. I'm I'm, uh, working with them on their homework. And and, uh, I realized that that, uh, this was pretty tough, and they didn't accept me. They they pushed me away pretty quickly and gave me a really hard time. And uh, I just kind of said, all right, I got to suck it up. I can do this for a year. That's that's why I'm here. And that fall— uh, the boys went trick-or-treating. They were 7th through 10th grade at that point. I don't think all of them went trick-or-treating. Uh, I didn't go with them. They were old enough. I didn't need to walk around the neighborhood with them. And about a half hour into their trick-or-treating, a neighbor called and said, hey, a bunch of people in the neighborhood are calling and are worried because they see these kids uh, walking through the neighborhood that they don't belong, and I can't remember what the phrase was, but uh, that was the feeling. And uh, I thought they're trick or treating. What do you, what do you, what do you want them to do? It's October 31st. That's what kids do. Uh, and and that was a bit of a wake-up call for me. That that uh, while I had been this wide-eyed idealist, and now I was feeling like a victim, and poor me was living in this house. It, it was a, a real wake-up call that. Uh, you know, I didn't fully understand what they were dealing with, and it wasn't just about giving them access to this education. It was this burden that they were carrying, and the, and it was the way people were looking at them. So, you know, that decision uh, changed my life. I'm still very involved in that. I met my wife through th- through that program. I've, nice. <laughs> I still uh, stay stay connected to some of those kids. So, you know, it's it certainly changed the way I've seen the world.
1: Wow, that's that's a very again another very impactful story. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, as you've shared these stories about privilege and opportunity, how do you connect to that to the subject of talent?
2: Makes sense you'd go there since this is called subject <laughs> to talent and uh, we're in the jobs business. And as, as you asked me earlier about opportunity, we're in the opportunity business. So uh, is there a more fundamental way to help people and help our country and our world move from a state of inequality to one where there's equality to ultimately equity to justice than really addressing something so fundamental as, as access to opportunity, access to skills, and, and that job that, that is so central to dignity and purpose. So that's, that's how I connect it, and that's where you know, we've really tried to figure out how do we have a voice in that, and how do we really focus and, and redouble our efforts on, on bridging that opportunity divide in that world of employment.
1: Yeah. And in really trying to move the needle, what do you see today that's not really working relative to access to jobs and opportunities?
2: Yeah, gosh, there's a lot that works. I I think we have so many examples of of people who are are thriving from all walks of life, uh, but there is clearly bias. There is an unconscious bias in Uh, The way we hire, the way we promote, the way we dole out assignments and and part of moving from that unconsciously unskilled to consciously unskilled is recognizing and acknowledging that there's bias and that bias isn't inherently bad. We have to compartmentalize things and figure out how we can make quick decisions to move forward. Uh, but when it's disproportionately impacting certain uh, groups, certain races, certain ethnicities, genders, et cetera, you know, that's when we have a problem. So it starts with how do we surface and recognize that bias? When and how do we slow down our thinking and making sure that we're mitigating bias when and where we can? And there's lots of, lots of smart people who are doing some amazing work you know, relative to, to, to those biases. But it starts there. Um, beyond that, I think about the way that we hire, and, and uh, I'm filled with stories, Sarah, so I'll-, I'll, I'll
1: Yeah, I think your stories it, are great, keep going.
2: <laughs> uh, I'll tell you one, and, and this, this is gonna take us down a little bit of a different path, but there's a, a gentleman that uh, I've come to know, to know uh, who's become a friend who is a, a really inspiring leader in the inclusion movement. And uh, he's, he's really focused his energy on inclusion in India, as well as inclusion in the autism community. He has a son with autism, or on the autism spectrum. His name's V.R. Feroz. And he was explaining to me uh, how he looks at the hiring process and said, every hiring process that you have is screening for social skills, visual cues. Are you able to make eye contact? Are you able to connect with the person that you're interviewing? Uh, as well as the ability to demonstrate how you're gonna function really well in a team. And he said, Andy, my son will never get a job if those are the criteria, because that's not what he does well, but he does some things incredibly well and given the right opportunity and given focus on his strengths, I promise you he'll outperform 99% of the people, but we've created a process that's gonna exclude him. So." You know, I think about that unconscious bias, which is much more of a decision-making paradigm, but I also think about how do we focus on people's strengths? How do we rethink the resume? Uh, right now, we've automated a process that's matching keywords or experience and filtering out people who don't meet very specific criteria. and that has probably saved lots of time and has served a lot of good things. And I'm not proposing that we do away with that, but how do we think about the and there and how do we understand you know, what people do really, really well and put them in a position to win? So you know, those, are, those are some pretty systemic issues that, that are just in the way that we hire uh, and we have to address them. We have to think differently about the the, the talent that we have coming in if we really wanna be inclusive and we wanna bridge this opportunity divide.
1: Yeah, I, I love that concept of the and. Uh, Not just what we've historically focused on with a set of skills or, you know, the buzzwords you said that we're looking for in a resume, but also looking at the person and the opportunity that could be out there for them, because there's probably so much untapped talent that we're not even thinking about right now. So I really that really resonated with me when you talked about that.
2: Yeah, just just back to my story. I'm an English and creative writing master's degree with an English and philosophy undergrad there's no way anyone would have found me through some automated matching system to have had this experience. And and frankly, most of the people that I know that I really think have, have done some pretty amazing things, they're not leveraging what they learned in university. They're learning on the job and they're willing to throw themselves in there and figure stuff out. I mean, you're an example of that. So, um, I, I, somehow, some way, we've got to build that into the way that we access talent and we give people access to opportunity. And you know, that's part of that shift from equality to equity. Equality is, hey, we've got to treat everyone the same and equity gets to fairness. And, and you know, how can we really shine a light on, on people's unique talents and put them in a position to win?
1: Yeah, I love it. I think it's great. Um, how do you see the current focus on upskilling helping to bridge this divide?
2: Yeah, it's a it's, uh, it's an interesting question, and I'll answer it maybe uh, with a, a broader aperture first. Uh, the, the, we've talked a lot, or I've talked a lot about 2020 and, and some of the challenges. And it, upskilling and reskilling is an issue, was an issue that, that is going to dramatically affect the future of work and the global economy, period. For, forget 2020, 2020 aside, that's, that's a macro trend. Uh, the, the the reality is there, there, there's a lot of concern about is automation going to go kill jobs? And the answer is yes, it's going to kill jobs and it's going to create a lot of jobs. And, and by most estimations, and the ones that I certainly buy into, it's going to create more than it kills. Uh, but do we have the people who are ready to take on those jobs? So you know, upskilling is, is, is part of addressing that digital skills gap. It's, it's part of recognizing that uh, we all have to invest there as individuals, as companies, as countries, as a, as a world. Um, it's also a recognition that, that our educational system is really not built for the digital world. Uh, that the, I can't take credit for this quote, but I, I love it. It's, it's from uh, the founder of Degreed, and uh, somebody asked him about, about education, and he said, hey, the, the usual answer about your education as you go back and tell the story of where you went to college, um, or graduate school, or high school, or wherever. And uh, he said, that would be like somebody asking you about your health and fitness, and you saying, well, I ran a marathon in 1990. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that relevant right now, and and somehow you know, we've created this binary system. So I, I believe upskilling and reskilling and, and really focusing on these assignment-based views of the world is part of the solution as we think about bridging that overall digital skills divide, and it's certainly part of the solution when, when we think about bridging, bridging that opportunity divide that, that we've talked about that's really come into focus in 2020.
1: Yeah. Um, how is Allegis responding to Stay Ahead?
2: Uh, it's a great question. So, Allegis has been around for 37 years, and, and our hallmark has been that focus on people and culture and opportunity. Uh, But I would also tell you we've prided ourselves on being the best in the world at finding talent. Uh, And I think there's been a clear uh, awakening to the idea that finding talent is not enough right now. And we need to be in the talent building business as well. So uh, some of that comes from the way that we're partnering in the community. Uh, Each of our businesses is really focused on workforce development from a CSR perspective, and it, it, it certainly makes sense for in, in the community, but it also makes sense it, from a, a long-term business projection to say, how do we not just access talent, but build it? Uh, we've also been incubating a business, Career Circle, which I'm really, really excited about. And, and that business started uh, really with the premise that we ought to be in this, this upskilling, reskilling conversation. And we need to be able to access talent that, that we're not finding today because the, the matching of the resume and the job description isn't working. Uh, and there's a, a population that needs to bridge this divide. So we're doing a whole lot there. Uh, and, and then each of our businesses is, is solving it in their own way for their unique markets.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. I, I love that. What advice would you have for someone who's trying to reinvent themselves and has committed to a career change?
2: Yeah, it's, it's a question I think I, I would answer differently now than I did a year ago. And some of that uh, is I've, I've read a couple different books and really started to embrace some of the ideas around habits. Uh, Because the the, the old conventional wisdom would be, you need motivation, you need a goal. Start there and then work backwards and say, hey, I want to become a solution architect. I want to become a Java developer. I want to become a brain surgeon, whatever it is. Now, what do I have to do to do that? And and, uh, maybe with a lot of Time not traveling this year. I've I've been able to dive in deeper on on some topics, but habit forming has been one of them. And, and there's a a couple books. One called Atomic Habits by James Clear, and another called Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg, that have probably changed my perspective on this. And what they would say, what what Clear would say, is don't start with with that goal or that motivation. Start with your identity. You know, I'm the kind of person who is gonna be a lifelong learner. And I'm the kind of person who's gonna commit every day to getting a little bit better until I'm well-suited to take on a different role. So anyone who's thinking about a career change, I think it starts with establishing that, that sense of identity. Here's the kind of person who I am, and then really focusing on that tiny habit. Every morning after I wake up, I'm going to read two pages. I'm going to commit to one class or five minutes of online training, whatever it is. And to me, that's the the building block or the start towards really being a relentless learner. And and I know Carol Dweck's done all the work on fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Uh, Growth mindset wins every day, and we need relentless learners. That's what's going to win uh, today and tomorrow. Um, The other advice I'd say— uh, is, is one about perseverance. No means not yet. You're, you're likely going to get frustrated. You're going to find that you feel like you're ready for that next job, and it's not coming. Um, that's okay. Look at that. Look at that as a learning experience. Figure out how you're going to persevere through that, and and uh, good things will happen. And, and lastly, take that assignment mentality. Um, everything is an assignment, and if if you really approach things, even even the most arduous. Of, of tasks or or roles as, hey, this is a chance to learn and get better and figure out how I can continue to grow. I think those are the building blocks that'll allow somebody to do almost anything in terms of making a pivot and, and a shift in their career.
1: Yeah, that's great. What about the people who maybe want to make a change, but they're not quite you know there yet from a skill set standpoint? What advice would you give them?
2: There, there's an old uh, Sheryl Sandberg commenc- commencement speech mm-hmm. where uh, she, she just uh, challenged, I think it was a high school graduating class in California where she said, hey, what would you do today if you weren't afraid? And, and so you know, to me, it's take the risk. There's, very, there's a lot of research about regrets people have, and it's rarely about something that you, you did. It's about what you chose not to do. So somebody who's, who's thrust into that situation, be a student, approach it with a beginner's mind, read about it, ask smart people, watch videos, take a class. But but immerse yourself in there and set yourself up to win. And uh, if if we all waited until we were fully ready, I don't think a whole lot would happen. I I think uh, the world's filled with people who took some risks and figured it out. And, you know, unfortunately, back to some of those unconscious biases, I don't know that we've always uh, encouraged people in equal ways to take risks. So uh, I think it's my responsibility and our responsibility on the other side of that to really tap people and push them to do things that maybe they're not comfortable with. And, you know, I would encourage everyone to, to, uh, be a little bolder in in, in taking that chance, and, and trust me, things work out.
1: Yeah, no, I, that's great advice, and I completely agree. Without taking risks, there, there aren't the rewards that come after it, right? And it's so important to continue to push people out of their comfort zone. Cha- being challenged, I feel, is the best way to grow and to learn. So really, really good advice there. Thanks. Um, what should companies do to address the opportunity divide?
2: Yeah, so, so I've probably touched on a little bit of this with, with some of the thoughts on unconscious bias uh, training and awareness, as, as well as how we need to rethink hiring process um, and approach. But, but maybe even before we get there, uh, I, I, was, I mentioned the gentleman who, who leads an inclusion movement in India. I had a chance to appear on a panel uh, last year at this inclusion summit, and I pulled together some of our smartest, uh, most thoughtful DNI leaders and asked their advice because I was going to represent the corporate perspective uh, for for folks. And uh, the first word, and several people said it, was "you have to be intentional." Um, you have to be intentional. So to me, you know, intentionality is is the start. Uh, from there, wh- what do you have to be intentional about? Some of it is is about ensuring that this opportunity divide and bridging this opportunity divide and, and focusing on things like bias are on the top of the agenda. And and, and uh, I had a fear, have a fear, that uh, the conversation that started, and it, it was a conversation that was in mo- in motion, but really picked up a lot of steam after the George Floyd killing and video uh, would run the risk of... of uh, taking a backseat as the 24-hour news cycle, and our attention span took us to whatever the next challenge is. So you have to be intentional. You've got to be able to have tough, courageous conversations. You've got to encourage people to speak their truth and speak truth to power. So some of it starts there. Uh, I go back to challenge your hire- hiring criteria. Figure out how you invest in people and recognize that your hierarchy is not your hierarchy. The the reality is everyone is on an assignment. Everyone is on this journey to figure out how do I realize my my potential? And how do you create a lattice work that allows people to take on those assignments? And how do you allow people to really leverage their strengths? So that intentionality could show up in building apprenticeship programs. It could show up in the way that you're thinking differently about accessing all talent. Uh, But in the end, you've got to have people be their authentic self. And if you're not creating an environment where where people can be their authentic self, uh, you're not going to bridge that opportunity divide. And, and I feel, feel so strongly that that, that is 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 a baseline for everything that we do. You cannot be a leader in this company if you're not an inclusive leader. Period. End of story. I
1: completely agree. Uh, all right. So the last question I have for you today: Are you optimistic about our ability as a nation and as a world to bridge the opportunity divide?
2: Yeah. This this goes back to how I felt a few months ago, and I was not optimistic. I was really uh, struggling, as I said, with with what felt like either no progress or very glacial progress, and um, I've definitely turned a corner, and uh, there, there's, a, there's a concept in biology uh, called punctuated equilibrium, and it's this idea that, that we think of evolution as this really gradual process, and there's these mutations, and over the course of millennium or, or yeah, centuries, millennium, there, there's this gradual change, and, and what really happens is usually there's some event that, that interrupts stasis. So things are kind of moving in a fairly static way or not moving. They're pretty static. And suddenly there's a lot of change. So you go back, I don't know how many years, but an asteroid hits the earth and and it completely changes the role of mammals and dinosaurs and dinosaurs go away and all that stuff. And and so I've started to look at this time as, as a time of punctuated equilibrium. And if, frankly, if we don't, bridge this opportunity divide I would have grave concerns about the future of our race not to not to be too dramatic but you talk about the digital skills you talk about uh, the common humanity that we all share and I just think hey it's the only way we both survive and thrive is we address these fundamental systemic issues that are really plaguing us and plaguing our future um, and and you know I go back to, that idea that, that we're still early in that journey. And it's sad and frustrating that we're this early in the journey, but, but we've moved from that unconsciously unskilled to that consciously unskilled level. And uh, I, I choose to think of that uh, in the Jim Collins flywheel sense, that you know change really happens when you get the flywheel moving and, and with intentionality and with commitment, that flywheel is gonna get moving faster and we're gonna make lots of mistakes. I'm gonna make lots of mistakes, but uh, I, I love the Na- Nelson Mandela quote uh, where he says, hey, I never lose, I either win or I learn. So as long as we have that mindset, we're gonna learn. We're gonna get better and we're gonna win. Um, and I know I have a lot of learning to do, we have a lot of learning to do, uh, but we will bridge this divide. And, and I put my head on the pillow feeling such confidence that we've got so many brilliant people out there who can lead this charge that we need to get out of the way, listen to, amplify their voices, connect with. uh, And I'm incredibly optimistic about about our future.
1: Wow, that's great, Andy. I do want to say I've learned a lot from you today. I really appreciate your time and sharing your stories and your vulnerability has been fantastic. So thanks for joining me today.
2: Yeah, thanks so much, Sarah. This was a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care.
0: Yep, you too. Thank you for listening today. We want to thank Andy for joining us on Subject to Talent. If you would like to learn more about Allegis Group, please visit AllegisGroup.com. And if you have any questions for Andy or Sarah, feel free to tweet at Allegis Global or at Allegis underscore group with the hashtag Subject to Talent. Also, you can email us at Subject to Talent at AllegisGlobalSolutions.com. If you enjoyed our podcast today, please subscribe, rate us and leave a review. Until next time, cheers.